Why do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? If you're a Christian here, why do you believe him? Why do you trust him? Why do you think that the claims that he makes about himself are true? And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, but I'd ask you the same question. Why do you not believe Jesus is who he says he is? What's holding you back? See, when pressed, we could all answer that question. We all have reasons. Even if we haven't thought about it too much, they're not so spelled out. We all have reasons. That's how we work as human beings. We have reasons for receiving or rejecting something. We have reasons for believing or not believing something. We have reasons for agreeing or denying. We have reasons, in this case, for looking at Jesus and saying, yes, he's my God, my Savior, my Lord, I love him. Or, for looking at Jesus and saying, no. Or, I don't really care. Or, yeah, I'll go to church, but this isn't really that much for me. And I say all this because part of what we're going to see from our text this morning is that Jesus knows this. He made us like this. And so he's going to give us some reason, some evidence for why he truly is who he says he is. And that brings us to our text here in John chapter 5, which was just read. We're going to finish John chapter 5 together this morning, and we're at the end of a story A story that began with Jesus healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. This is a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus goes to him and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man starts walking. But since it was on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders didn't really like it very much and started questioning the situation. And they questioned the man who was healed And the crucial question of all of chapter 5 comes in verse 12, and they ask the man, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is the man? That's the question of the chapter. And for us reading it, or us listening to it here in a church service, that's our question. What do we do with him? What do we do with him? What's unique, though, here in John chapter 5 is that Jesus gives a lengthy answer to the question about who he is. He begins by saying that he works alongside the Father, implying that he's equal with the Father. And then last week we saw him emphasizing his authority, that he has divine authority. But that then brings us to our final section here that we're going to cover today. What we're going to see here, it's something interesting. Jesus decides to end this conversation and end this story by essentially putting himself on trial. On trial. You might have noticed above verse 30, if you have the ESV, they supply this heading. They supply the heading, Witnesses to Jesus. That's because in Jewish law in the Old Testament, it was written that there needed to be at least two other witnesses to validate a claim, to establish a charge. So Jesus here is essentially putting himself on trial. He's saying there's evidence that he can withstand a trial. You see that in verses 30 and 31. These are introductory verses if you want to look down. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. 
because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. So Jesus is putting himself on trial very clearly to show that he can be deemed true. He's saying, it's not just me saying all this, proving all this. I can call forth witnesses, evidence. And why does he think he can do that? Because it's true. He really is who he says he is. But before we move on to the rest of the section and we see these witnesses, I just want to stop here and realize how amazing it is that he does this. I mean, Jesus really deeply cares about people believing him. I mean, really knowing him, knowing him to be true, believing him and loving him. He, he doesn't just say to all of us, I'm the Savior, believe me. He says, I'm the Savior. Here's evidence. Here's proof. Believe me. That's encouraging. That's encouraging for us. So as we go through the rest of the section, I encourage you, ask along with those Jewish, those Jewish leaders, who is the man who can say all these things? Who does all these things? And then see the evidence. So here's a little bit of our outline of our time this morning together. As you might have noticed, as we read the scripture, this is not the easiest section to follow. It's one of the hardest in the whole Gospel of John. But as we go through it, we're going to see three main themes and ideas woven throughout. Three main themes. The first is the witnesses. The witnesses that Jesus calls forth. Second, we're going to see the tragic response to the witnesses. It's a response that was common then and is still common today. And then third, we're going to see Jesus take the root issue, tell us the root issue at what's at stake for why people actually receive or reject him. So the witnesses, the tragic response, and then what Jesus sees as the root issue. So we start by looking at the witnesses, the witnesses that Jesus calls to the stand. And in keeping with Jewish law, Jesus is going to call forth two witnesses beside himself, two witnesses to show that this is true. But as we'll see, he thinks one is way greater than the other. But the first witness we read about, verses 32 through 35. So if you want to look down, starting in verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first witness we see is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who's been in this gospel and this story a few times. He's a man of truly godly character. Who made it clear he was not all about himself, but about Jesus. He was not all about his own glory and praise, but about Jesus and God's glory. And remember that, because that's going to come up later in our text and Jesus says here in verse 33 that John bore witness to the truth. Verse 35, that John was a burning and shining lamp and that people were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the first witness is John the Baptist, the lamp. The lamp. 
intentional terminology that Jesus uses there because John is not the light. He's a lamp. It's Jesus, as you know, who in the gospel and in the story is clearly the true light coming into the world. He stands up and says, I am the light of the world. John is just a lamp. So in other words, Jesus is saying that John is a witness because he was a lamp that they could see who was shining forth Jesus' light. John's life, his actions, his ways of living, his character were so unique that they proved that Jesus' claims he was making about himself were true. We'll come back to that later and see how it applies to us. But before we do that, I want to move on to the second witness that Jesus calls to the stand. So although John is a witness, Jesus is about to say that there's a much greater witness. That ultimately his witness does not come from any mere man. So what's the best proof? Where does the witness come from? And that's the rest of our section. God himself. God himself is bearing witness. The Father God. And so how? Well, Jesus says that the Father's doing this in two main ways. That there's two main ways that God is bearing witness, showing proof that Jesus actually is who he says he is. And the first way is just in verse 36. If you want to continue in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is clear there, right? That the many works, actions, miracles that he's doing prove that he's no mere man. This is true of his miracles, but it's especially true when he goes to the cross willingly and then rises from the dead. This is evidence. That's evidence. It still is proof in history that Jesus actually is who he says he is. Who else can turn 180 gallons of water into wine? Who else can say to a man who's been dead for four days, come forth and the guy rises from the dead? Who else can heal a man in the stories we saw who's been paralyzed for 38 years? But even more incredibly and amazingly and gloriously, who else lovingly and willingly goes and suffers and dies on a Roman cross? Who else can say, I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise myself back up and then actually do it? Jesus is saying that all of this is proof that God is really with him, that he really is the Son of God. So the first way that God is showing forth witness that Jesus is true is through Jesus' life, his actions, his works. And to be clear, I don't think this only applies to his miracles, it does, but applies to everything in history that happened with Jesus. His teachings, his ministry, his character, All that happened in history and is still bearing witness that this is all real. That he really is who he says he is. But as important as we might think that his miracles are and his teachings are, Jesus actually doesn't spend as much time on those in this section. Instead, the emphasis on the rest of the section is the second way that the Father bears witness to him. The second way... And that's through the scriptures, through the Bible. 
That's the emphasis of the rest of the section. You can see it, verses 37 through 40, if you want to look down there. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, if you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that it's in them that you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 37, he talks about God's voice. Verse 38, he talks about God's word. Verse 40, he talks about the scriptures. It's all talking about the same thing. This book is God's voice. If you want to hear God, you go here. This book is God's word. This is his scriptures, which just in the original language just means writings. And Jesus is saying it all is proof that he's true. It all points to him. And this is how he ends the paragraph in the story too. Look at verses 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is really clear that this book, this Bible, is God's witness that he truly is who he says he is. Meaning, think of it this way. Jesus is saying if you read this book, and you really study it, and you really see what it's all about, it can prove that he's not just some strange rabbi who decided to come on the scene. That he literally has been God's plan all along. He's what this book has always been about. And just to explain this a little further, I wish we had more time on this, but to be clear... When we make statements and we read statements like this and we say things like the Bible is all about Jesus, we don't only mean that it applies to the prophecies about him. It does apply to those and those are amazing. They're fulfilled in him. They are amazing. When he makes statements like that, it's larger than just the prophecies. It's more robust than that. It's fuller than that. See, what the rest of the New Testament makes clear is that what Jesus means, what the apostles mean that this book is all about Jesus, is that if you take everything in the Old Testament, and I really believe this, everything, things like creation, the fall of Adam, the promise to Abraham, the exodus, the Israelite nation, the temple, the sacrifices, the prophets, the kings, the promise of restored Israel, all of it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. All of it was foreshadowing the coming of this God-man. I still don't want to be vague here, right? Because this still sounds like, okay, what does that mean? That can be confusing. But here's what it means. Here's what it means. He's the creator who brings in the new creation. He's the savior from the fall. He's the perfect Adam. In him, all the blessings of Abraham's can be found and go to the nations. He brings about the true exodus from sin, the true deliverance. He's the true Israelite, and now all who believe in him are part of the Israel of God. He's the temple where we worship. He's the high priest. He's the final sacrifice. He's the final prophet. He's the forever global king. It literally has always been about him. All of Israel, all the stories were always pointing to him, about knowing him, about being found in him. Paul makes this clear in Colossians 2, just to clarify. He's talking about the Old Testament. And he says it's, it's a shadow pointing to the substance, which is Christ. It's a picture pointing to 
the reality. And yet tragically, as we'll come to in a little bit, people read it, people can even say they love it, the Bible, and yet sometimes they still don't want him. Before we move on to that, so here's the two witnesses, right? We got John the Baptist, and then we have the Father bearing witness that this is true through Jesus' works and history and through the word, through the scriptures. Those witnesses are still witnessing today. They still apply today. First, John the Baptist, right? For those listening to Jesus, he was a recent historical proof that this was all true. He was a guy that they knew that proved that this, that Jesus' claims that this is all real. And the same should be true of us Christians today. If you are here and you're an unbeliever, I do hope and I do pray that you have at least one Christian or Christians in your life who are different. And I mean deeply different. Who love uniquely, who are humble, who are gracious. All that is proof that this is real. For Christians, church, brothers and sisters, let that, let that be us. Let that be us. Let us be those lamps, as John the Baptist was called, shining forth a unique light, showing that the light is real. So when you do something, ask, does this make my lamp shine brighter? My lamp, which is proof to people that this is all real, that he is real, that this is true. So when you're in a conversation with somebody, or honestly, when you're, when you're posting on social media, when you're engaging in politics, ask the question, does this make my lamp shine brighter? And yet, as we saw, Jesus did not think that the main proof came from any man, John the Baptist, nor you and I. It still doesn't. The main proof is still, his main witness is still God himself. God is still bearing witness through history, right? Through Jesus' works, through his character. Our faith is based on history. Around 2,000 years ago, a man came and he claimed to be the I am. And then he went willingly to a cross and died and then he rose back up from the grave. What do you do with that history? It's still bearing witness that this is all true. But arguably even more important than history, Jesus says, is this book. The proof from this book. There's something special here. There's a reason why Christianity has spread all over the world and this book along with it. Why? This is really the creator's words the designer's words to us. And so when we read it and study it and love it and see Jesus in it and apply it, we're changed into more of how he made us to be. And so those are the witnesses. Ask yourself, what do I do with them? What do you do with them? You might have noticed at the end of verse 34, Jesus says, I say these things so that you may be saved. That's the goal here of this trial. That's the goal. Jesus is not playing games. This isn't just some interesting intellectual investigation. 
their eternal salvation, your eternal salvation, my eternal salvation and joy and peace as it's, is at stake. So how do you receive the witnesses? Do you love Jesus? And that leads us to our second theme. So the first theme we saw was the witnesses. Was the witnesses. Now second now, we're going to see the tragic response to the witnesses, a response that's still common today. And the response in the section comes up over and over in Jesus' words, but it's pretty straightforward. And it's this. People don't want him. There's evidence from fellow people, from history, from the Bible, and yet people don't want him. I want you to see it for yourself from the text over and over how Jesus makes this point. So look down again, verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his, and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Continuing on, verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. One more time, verse 43, if you want to skip down there. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So taken as a whole, Jesus is clear. People don't want to come to him. They don't want to believe him. They don't want to receive him. It's him they have a problem with. The issue is not mainly a lack of evidence. It's him. And so here at Brothers and Sisters Church is where we need to be lovingly straightforward because Jesus is in this text. Perhaps you've noticed that there's not too many easy or just simply encouraging statements from Jesus in this section. In most of it, he's being pretty firm, saying that, that there's evidence, but, but people don't want to come to him. But here's where it hits home. He's saying all these things to people who said they were worshipers of the God of the Bible. Do we feel that? They possessed the Bible. Jesus said, they, Jesus said they did Bible study. They searched the scriptures. They met for worship. They prayed. They raised their kids to know and love the Lord their God. You should tremble at the similarities. But yet Jesus says over and over to them, you don't want me. So that's the question for you and I right now. Do you want him? Do you want him? Jesus says that there will be many people who do a lot in his name and call him Lord, Lord, but not enter the kingdom. Paul says we should examine ourselves. He says that there are some among us who are not, quote unquote, genuine. John says that some of us, that there are some who are of us who will be shown at the end of the day to not truly have been of us. And the reason they say all this 
is because of what Jesus makes plain in this section here. You can be a confessing worshiper of God. You can read and study the Bible. You can raise your kids in the Bible. You can meet frequently for worship. You can push God-honoring ethics in culture, in politics, in your home, in your personal life. They did all of those things. You can do all of that and still not want Jesus. This is why, by the way, I titled the message, Do You Receive Him? The emphasis is on Him. It's frightening how easy it is, even today, to want to be morally correct, to want to believe in God, even be Bible-focused, and yet still not genuinely want Jesus. And so do you want Jesus? Do you receive, do you cling to, do you love, do you trust Jesus? And I mean the Jesus of the Bible, the one who bids for you right now to come to him just as you are, to receive him as your savior and your Lord, as your God and your friend, and who says to you that even if you die, it's gain because you get to be with him. Do you want that Jesus? This, in essence, is biblical belief. This is what it means to be a Christian. God changes our hearts so that we don't just agree with the facts of the witnesses, though we do, but even demons believe facts. But so that we say, yes, I want him. I want to have him. I want to receive him. I want him to be my God. I don't want to be my own God. I want him to be my treasure. I want him. I don't want to live for myself. I want Jesus. So do you want Jesus? I pray you do. That's still not all the text has to offer. That's not all Jesus has to offer us. Thus far, we've seen the themes. First, we saw the witnesses. Then we saw the tragic response to the witnesses. And now... We're going to see the root issue that Jesus points out. The root issue. If the tragic response is that people don't want him, we can ask why? Why don't people want him? Again, I point you to the the title, Do You Receive Him? Why you should, that's the witnesses, and why most don't. Most people don't genuinely receive Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus makes it plain in verses 41 through 44. These are sobering verses, but they're really helpful. So if you're going to look down, starting in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? There's a lot in there. If we had more time, we'd love to unpack it. But I want to focus on that climactic verse 44. This is the root issue. I'll read it one more time. Verse 44, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another 
and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The main word you can see there is glory. Glory or or honor or praise or recognition or status. And what Jesus says is clear. How can you believe when you're all about your own glory that you can get and not about God's? In other words, Jesus says it's impossible to believe when we're people who are honestly focused all about our own honor, our own selves. It's impossible to genuinely want Jesus when, if we're honest with ourselves, we're really just focused on our own self-glory, on us. That's the root issue. Desiring to be mainly about ourselves and people seeing us and not mainly about Jesus or God. And notice in verse 44, this is interesting. I think this is on purpose. Those who don't receive Jesus, who don't genuinely receive Jesus, they do receive in verse 44. They do receive. So what do they receive? What do they cling to? What do they grab as they they live life? Not Jesus, but their own glory. And Jesus is clear. That's the root issue for why people don't want him. It's not mainly evidence, a lack of evidence. It's that. Think of it this way. Each one of us in our hearts, even at this very moment, has a glory compass, if you will, a glory compass. And as we go through life, as we act and people see us do things, our internal glory compass is pointing somewhere. As we do things like go to work or even raise a family or even go to church and do God-honoring things, our glory compass is guiding us somewhere. For the non-receiver of Jesus, the person who doesn't genuinely receive Jesus, it's pointing inward. Whatever it looks like on the outside, even in a church, whatever it looks like on the outside, inside, they're all about themselves. For the genuine receiver of Jesus, and it's a miracle. It's pointed to God's glory. Yes, we still sin and struggle, let's be clear, a lot. But genuinely, the Christian, as Jesus says here, seeks God's glory. And so that's the question. Where are you in verse 44? Because Jesus makes it clear that on the one side, it's impossible to believe. And the other side, people genuinely do receive him. So check your glory compass. This comes up again in John chapter 12 when we get there. And even there, it's almost even clearer John writes that people don't believe in Jesus. Why? Quote, because they love the glory from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the question is not, do you call yourself a believer in God? Do you call yourself a follower of God? These people did. The question is not even, do you call yourself a Christian? The question is not even, do you believe the facts of the witnesses? The question is, do you want to live for receiving your own glory, whatever that might mean for you personally, through success or money or respect or honor or a legacy, or 
Do you want to receive and live for him? And with that, chapter 5 ends. This story about Jesus healing a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, this is what Jesus wanted to leave us with. Who is he? He's equal with God. He has authority. How do we know? There's witnesses. Right? People, God, through history, through the Bible. But even then, people don't come. They don't believe. Why? Because they don't want him. And why don't people want him? Why tragically might some of you in this room right here not genuinely want him? Because people just want to live their own lives for their own sake, for themselves. And in doing so, Jesus says, it's impossible to genuinely believe. And then, you're missing out on eternal joy, life, and peace. And not only that, but a glory to come. Remember, the future for us Christians is called being glorified. A glory to come that far outweighs any puny glory that you could get here. And so as we end, I want to apply this whole section just briefly to those who think they haven't genuinely received Jesus and then to those, who us, those of us who have. So first, if you're here and you think you haven't genuinely received Jesus, I just ask you to examine three things. Three things to look into. First, examine the evidence. Examine the evidence, meaning ask solid Christians why they're Christians. Or look into history. See the history. It's proof. A man rose from the dead around 2,000 years ago. And especially look into the Bible. Take the Bible home with you. Start in the Gospel of John. Start seeing who Jesus is. Examine the evidence. Second, I'd ask you, examine your heart. Why do you not want him? What's going on inside of your heart right now? And honestly, is what you're living for, that glory, whatever it may be, is it really worth it? Is it really that satisfying? And then third, I'd ask you to examine the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ, that's what the gospel means. That's what Christianity is all about, that we are really broken and sinful, everyone in this room. And yet God decided to come. He went willingly to the cross. He rose for the, from the grave, and now he bids you to come just as you are. You don't have to do good works. Christianity is not about that. You just come to him. Examine the good news. So examine the evidence, examine your heart, examine the gospel. But lastly, I want to apply this to us, the church. Brothers and sisters who have genuinely received Jesus, as we said earlier, let's be intentional to be as bright of lights as possible, bright lamps showing forth that this is true. But besides that, I think there's one big takeaway from the text. One big takeaway from the text, and it's pretty simple. And it's this, if, if you truly right now, you know you do want Jesus, you truly have received him, you've really come to him, you really love him, you really trust him, then praise God. In your heart right now, thank God. The Bible is clear, we can't change our glory compasses. We can't, only God can. He gets the glory for it. Jesus made this clear earlier in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. And he said to him, unless you are born again, there's the glory compass change, there's the change of your heart. Unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, which includes the king. Only God can make you see the king. 
And so if you're here and you do see Jesus as lovely, genuinely, you love him, you see him as beautiful, you see the gospel as compelling, then thank God because God did it. And so we can read sections like this where we tragically see so many people denying him and with gratefulness in our hearts we can say, thank you God, I really do love Jesus. And it's out of that thanks and love, brothers and sisters, that our lamps will shine all the more brightly. Let's pray together, let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you really are who you say you are. That you are God in the flesh. That you are the savior of the world. That you are the king of kings. That you are the friend of sinners. Jesus, we each know in our hearts how sinful we really are. How broken we are. How twisted we are. And Jesus, you knew that and you still willingly went to the cross. You rose victorious from the grave. You reign forevermore, but not only that, you change hearts. We praise you for that, Jesus. We praise you for your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son. And I also pray, Jesus, for anyone in this room right now who doesn't genuinely love you, who hasn't really received you. We see your heart for them in this text, that you really want people to love you and know you. And so I pray right now, Jesus, that you might change their hearts. You might show them that you are better than anything that this world can offer. That you are good. That you are loving. And so we praise you, our God, for who you are. We thank you for the gospel. And it's your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's now rise and respond in worship.